Yo, what's up, guys and gals? You ever go to a drop zone, a new drop zone to you, someplace you've never been? You walk into Manifest to check in. You got to sign that waiver. Yeah, I won't, won't see if I die. There should probably be a I won't haunt you clause. None of the waivers say I can't haunt you if I die. But anyways, uh, one of the things I always ask me for is my USPA membership. It's my profession. It's my job. I travel uh, to do courses on occasion, and, and so I'm really prepared with my credentials all the time. And one of the things I hear is manifestors always shocked. Oh, you have your paperwork ready. Oh, you have your credentials. Oh, you have your USPA membership. And, and even being a manifest at the drop zone sometimes myself, a lot of people don't have that. And I don't blame you guys who carries that much stuff in their wallet, man. I don't want to be George Costanza sitting on this giant chunk of a wallet. So I don't always carry those things on me. And thank goodness Merits.com has come along. They used to be known as Sigma to, to a lot of us, but Merits.com, they are a credential uh, service, and they're really good. From what I've seen and what I know of credentials, or excuse me, uh, uh, Merit, they uh, were mainly skydiving when I first saw them, but now they are in all sorts of industries and all sorts of business, so you know they're super secure. But if I walk up to a drop zone and, and I want to show them I'm a USPA member, boom, I have my phone on me. I might not have my USPA membership card. I might not have this paperwork. I might not have this documentation, but I have my phone on me everywhere I go. And I know you do too, because I see the top of every single one of your heads. Look up off your phone and make eye contact every now and then. But we carry that phone and you can download the app from Merits, Merits.com, check them out, and you can carry your credentials anywhere and everywhere you go. Hey, what license do you have? Hey, what ratings do you hold? As a Sigma Tandem Examiner or UPT Tandem Examiner, I have my credentials there. USPA is using it. APF is using it. If you're into wingsuiting, Next Level is using it. Flight One uses it. There's so many different applications. If you're a drop zone, you can actually use it in an administrative role. At Spaceland, we, we uh, credential some of our staff that way. So they we know who they are. We know what credentials they have. And as they go from Spaceland to Spaceland, we have a way for them to carry that documentation around as well. It's super awesome. It's super easy. You carry your phone everywhere you go. Here's the best news for you skydivers. It's already linked to your USPA account. So if you have an online account with USPA, if you have your email address registered with USPA, you should have pretty easy access to it. If you've not figured it out by now, I figured it out pretty easily. And believe it or not, I'm not always the most tech savvy when it comes to new stuff. And I've seen some real boneheaded friends. I say boneheaded when it comes to technology who've been able to use it with zero problems. So check it out, merits.com. They're built for skydivers. They're built for people. It's a great way to carry your credentials around without carrying anything else. Put away the paper and carry your credentials digitally. I'd like to talk about our next guest tonight. We are still in the Stay Your Ass at Home editions of Gravity Lab, COVID-19, the vid, the Rona, Corona, my Corona. Uh, man, it's got us down. It's got us a little bummed. We'd like to see our friends. But the upside with the show, we actually get the opportunity to do Skype interviews. We normally only do these shows live, but my goodness, Melissa Lowe and I have talked for a little while, almost a year, about trying to get her on the show and the chances of her being in Houston just hasn't happened. So we took advantage of tonight. I hit a, I hit up uh, Melissa, got a hold of her. She was super eager to come on the show. And my gosh, this lady is such a blessing. She's done a bit of it all. Her family has done a bit of it all. Such a prolif prolific storyteller and such a great gal. Enjoy the show with Melissa Nelson Lowe. I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. 
I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You are listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? You guys can hear me okay? We can hear you okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we are live. I am so sorry. We have been running into technical difficulties. Uh, Just changing systems. Welcome to Gravity Lab Radio, a stay your ass at home edition with our special guest, Melissa Nelson-Lowe. Melissa, how have you been? Hi, I've been doing great. Quarantined. I forgot the number of days. <laughs> Have you locked yourself down? Did you go under quarantine? We self-quarantined before the whole thing went down and took my son out of school, started homeschooling straight away. And I think it was only five days later, the whole state shut down. So we just kind of were ahead of everything. So what, what made you feel like this was coming? Yeah, what, what, how come you were ahead of the game? I, I have no idea. I just, I think as a business owner owning a yoga studio and having hot yoga and all these people super close in a room just didn't sit well with me. And I thought that I would just feel terrible if something was passed in the yoga studio and that came back to me. And I don't want to harm, I have core values set for the yoga studio. And of course, those are to keep the students safe in a safe environment. I just decided to do it early and take the hits and it was totally worth it. I feel that I felt I slept much better because knowing that it wasn't going to be contracted at my yoga studio. Were you kind of ahead of other yoga studios in town about kind of jumping on that, uh, on that wagon? We are a really small town, so I'm not, I I think they were pretty, and they're smaller than my studio. I think they were shortly after me, and I think we, all the studios shut down before the state mandated. I know the health department was calling people and telling them to shut down. I just felt good that I didn't have to have that phone call. Yeah, that's good. We were just kind of chatting about yoga a little bit before we went live here. Uh, Tell me about your yoga studio. What's it called? Colorado Yoga House, and we are in Western Colorado. It is 30 minutes from the drop zone, which is really important. That's the drop zone my husband owns in Delta, Colorado. And we have all styles of yoga at our studio. We do hot, vinyasa, core. I'm smiling from our previous conversation. <laughs> That's <laughs> fine. See, this is the, for, for anyone who, who's ever on the show, you'll they'll these people will all notice that we try and get like stay out of good conversations in the time leading up to the show because like when we were having that conversation 10 minutes ago it's a super organic normal feeling conversation where you were just telling me about your place and now you're worried like that one person me has heard some of this before and now you're going to try and say it differently than you, than you said it. I just heard you in my head like isn't hot and vinyasa all the same <laughs> yeah tell, tell me like so let's say that you're going to go to a yoga class what sort of yoga do you want to go to myself I prefer a hatha flow that's the style I'm trained in where you hold poses for a while, so you're really working on the stretch, strength, and length, and uh, lengthening, and moving. I don't like to hold things too long, but I like to get my heart rate up and then start holding poses. 
the reason why I like that is because I feel that it really correlates in my skydiving because I like to make training hard. So when it comes to game time or skydiving, it's easier. So holding poses. So we're in your sky, especially flying vertical, and you're in these positions for a long time. It's just nice to know that you have the strength, power, and mental ability to hold whatever you need to do in the sky. So I guess yoga and skydiving have some similarities in that we're kind of holding these static poses, or maybe some are more static than others, and a lot of, a lot of body mechanics, body awareness. Do you feel like there are any other uh, parallels with skydiving and yoga? Yes, definitely the breath. That's what got me into yoga is, uh, let's see, it was in 98 Shortly after 98, I started yoga. I got familiar with it around 98, but it wasn't until a couple of years later. You know, talking with our skydiving students, we always say, breathe and relax. But we always teach the mechanics of what we do in the sky or feel it. And I thought, I really want to teach people how to breathe. How do you do that? And so I had some skydiving friends that told me more about yoga and pranayama and breathing, and that really drew me in so I could teach people how to breathe. So since that experience, I've learned so much more about the breath, not just the anatomy of how it moves in our body, but uh, what, what it does to our parasympathetic nervous system and uh, cognitively or situational awareness to be able to conserve energies, to be able to teach that to other people as possible, well, especially when you're doing something new and I'll be doing a, a seminar for project 19 on the breath because just think about being super amped up for world record skydive and we tell people to breathe all the time but now we're getting an opportunity where while we're here on the ground to teach a lot of different things so yeah I have oh, I questions know. About oh go ahead DJ go ahead uh, I have questions. The last time we did this with Nick and I, I got so busy and inundated with the technology that he had to run the whole show. So thanks, Nick. Um, I, I've been a huge proponent of, of, I call it yoga breathing for skydiving and teaching my students controlling breath, whether you believe in the religion or the science or, or the, the physiology, it truly does help. And I find that breathing is super important. And I'm curious to how you describe to new jumpers the exercise of breathing for skydiving. First, it's just being aware of the breath because think about, oh my gosh. So I was searching for some video footage to share for this seminar. And we took our four-year-old skydiving last year and I found myself holding my breath watching the video. And I was just that nervous on the actual skydive jumping with him that I just think teaching first the awareness helps people know when they have to activate breathing. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about her. She, she's just cleaning up after Pilates. <laughs> nice. Yay. After teaching the awareness, giving them cues of when to be aware for the breath. So, for example, every time you uh, touch your uh, three rings, that's a time you have to remember to breathe. Or every time you see a color, I like to think of the color green because green light in the plane. Oh, I have to remember to breathe. So it's just that cognitive awareness of the breath. And then the second thing, after they get that uh, 
uh, routine in, then it's how are, how are you breathing? Because just like in Scott, I mean, we don't, we don't want to teach too many things at once. And then giving, I give them a very basic, it's the belly breath, breathing into the belly and then up into the top lobes of the lungs and then, you know, bring it down. I, activating the core when you exhale. So just simple breathing techniques, but that's just it in a nutshell. <laughs> that are also very indicative that you do not have coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Breathing exercises. You can relax. You don't have coronavirus. I've always, so I'm a huge fan of water, water flows, water adapts, and I'll watch waterfalls and rivers. Like when I, when I go on vacation, I like to chase waterfalls. TLC was wrong. They're the dumbest (laughs) band ever. Chase waterfalls, people. And I love watching the way water flows and air is a fluid. The dynamics are the same. And I very much picture the air breathing in my mouth, watching the air currents watching how the air flows through my lungs and expanding and blowing everything up like a large balloon and watching everything squeeze. And I even like to watch the eddies, visualize them roll out of me. And as I do that, I, I really find a satisfaction and emptiness. I, I really empty everything inside of me out at that moment and my mind goes blank. And, and Nick, you've watched me sit in the back of the plane probably just sit there on my knees and close my eyes. I don't know if you've ever noticed that I do that. And when I am, I am 90 time, nine times out of 10 breathing and just focusing on letting life go. So I, I do find it super important. I appreciate you sharing that. I, I, I got to get back to one of the things you just said. First of all, you got to help me. I've asked you this question before. What's your son's name? Benjamin. Benjamin, thank you. Benjamin, um, man, he was four years old and he made his first jump. How old were you when you made yours? I was five. Yeah, five. and I really, really <laughs> wanted to wait for Benjamin to be five too. But the thing was, he started talking about it a lot. And then one day, he started begging me to go jump. Mommy, please, mommy, please, I'm going skydiving. It was the night before Mother's Day. He was sitting on my husband Ben's lap, and the two of them, those cohorts, right? Like, mommy, please, please, can I take Benjamin skydiving? I was like, fine, fine, let's go. We're going to do it. We're doing it tomorrow. It's Mother's Day. I'm like, it's tomorrow. We're doing this. So we did. And I'm so glad we did it then because he was ready. It wasn't dictated by me or anything. And he was so proud. And I think he was so excited because he's watched this, you know, I know four years isn't a long time, but he's watched this his whole life to be the one walking to the plane he owned it he had that strut going on he felt like what's up (laughs) so how much does he know about your guys's does he know that you guys have taken younger kids skydiving oh yeah yeah we have a lot of friends in the community uh, maybe maybe we should tell the not all the viewers are going to be familiar with you guys drop zone and and kind of this neat thing you're up to maybe we should go to that a little bit yeah well it's my husband's drop zone i do the studio stuff that's where I focus my time, but I do go and fun jump a lot, and I do a lot of demo training stuff at the drop zone. But my husband's drop zone is Ultimate Skydiving Adventures in Delta, Colorado, and he does take kids as young as seven years old skydiving. And, yeah, so my son did watch other kids. We have some family friends here in town that have taken their kids. So my son has seen this, and it's just it's just normal for him. And he knows mommy made a skydive at five, too. And it's really interesting to be able to relate to my son and the feelings that he was going through. Because he went to school, 
because he was preschool at the time. And he was like, mommy, I told all my friends about skydiving and they didn't <laughs> cool. I was like, because they don't understand what you're doing. They don't understand it at all, right? Because some of these kids never even heard of the word skydiving, more or less seen it. So they don't, they don't, they don't understand. They're they're too young, right? But I was like, oh my gosh, I had that same feeling when I was his age. It's so crazy. How how many memories do you have from your first skydive? I don't have too many. However, there's pictures. So that kind of, and there's still jumpers around. And when, oh, I don't know, in my 20s and 30s, they were sharing stories of that skydive. So I don't know if too much was learned memory from hearing what their stories were or of my actual memory. But I do remember they didn't have harnesses back in the day, 1982 this was for kids that size. So they kind of rigged stuff up and I remember duct tape, <laughs> lots of duct tape and I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think we were hooked to my dad's sport rig for our first jumps. This is kind of around the time advent of tandem as well. So it was just under a sport parachute. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And how, how long have you guys been, or how long has your husband been uh, doing this at his drop zone of taking these young kids? Yeah, he's starting his fourth season. It's it's wow. absolutely incredible and amazing. I am inspired by my husband to break away from the norm because, you know, everyone's like, ah, you know, kids, underage kids, and it's illegal, but it's not illegal. <laughs> I'll just say that and, and leave it there. Uh, otherwise, he would have been shut down on the day he opened. And the the one amazing thing is I grew up in the sport, so my experience is completely different than these people coming in with their kids that aren't skydivers. Um, there are some kids uh, going through some really personal trauma, like, like things they really don't want to say here. And after the kid jumped, the parents came back. Oh, my God, I might start crying. The kids were excelling in school and they were becoming more social and their grades were improving. Like that was like across the board, like right skydiving gave them this incredible gift for being so, you know, being young and having these horrible things happen to them and then having an experience where they can go and be themselves. And, and for me, I'm like, I love skydiving. Like it's my life. It's my lifestyle. It's how I make money. Um, but to have people have these experiences, like it just makes me love the sport so much more. And that my husband is so willing, he's willing to do this, take the risk um, to be able to give people this opportunity. It's absolutely incredible. You're going to be careful. You're going to make me cry in a second. <laughs> I want so that to, that gives me chills to hear you, to hear you say it that way. Like just to hear the, the passion that you, uh, that you feel about the way that your husband's doing it and, and my own personal beliefs about what skydiving has done for my life and what I've seen it do for other people's lives. Every, every part about what you just said, I fully, fully believe. I, I do want to speak for a second on the behalf of you and your husband, if you don't mind, and it may or may not be my place, but I am an examiner. I do train instructors and I do know the details of skydiving in the U.S. And there's nothing that says we can't take underage children. It's a personal risk that you can take as a drop zone owner and you have to make different associations and, and that's okay. And quite frankly, if anybody in the United States is going to be doing tandems with young children, Ben Lowe, I, I knew Ben well before he started USA Ultimate Skydiving Adventures. I knew Ben as an examiner when he worked for Braum and I have had nothing but the utmost respect for Ben Lowe. And 
your father, Roger Nelson, was a rogue once upon a time. He was trying things nobody should ever try. And Skydive Spaceland, where Nick and I work, we modeled our student program based off Roger's design. As you know, Roger and Steve were buddies. And Steve, Roger, let Steve copy it. You guys went from being, or Roger went from being this rogue to one of the guys who's highly impacted sports skydiving today. And it's so neat to see the risk that Ben is willing to take to, to be that innovator, that guy or that gal to push it because the sport means everything to me. It's changed my life. It's defined my life. It's made me who I am. And um, I'm just, I'm so blessed to be where I'm at today and to know that you're giving my friends, I, I know buddies who've taken their kids to jump with you guys. It's so awesome that you guys offer that opportunity. And if anybody out there has doubts or questions about how to do it or it being done right, don't be afraid to respectfully ask Ben because I know he can give you good and logical answers. Hell, send me a message and I'll tell you my mindset on it. And he's doing he's doing nothing wrong if you think he is. And he's doing everything great for families and people. And he makes smart decisions with great gear. If anybody can do it right, Ben Lowe is a good man. So uh -huh. just – <laughs> you're welcome i know you are always concerned about that topic of conversation i think you've always known I, i've been an advocate for ben and and question I'm, I'm curious to watch because it's he's in uncharted territory but uh what happens next year and 10 years down the road may very well be because of another great man in your life so benjamin ben and roger <laughs> yeah, my boys so one of uh, my biggest questions oh, go ahead one of my biggest questions about jumping with a four-year-old on a tandem might seem like a silly one. How was the fall rate? How slow did the sucker fall? I don't know. I wore a sweatshirt in my jumpsuit and I didn't have a problem. I, you know, being an AFF instructor forever, just, I have a range where I didn't really think too much about it. And we only jumped from 7,500 feet. So it did, it's just enough time to get there, get a couple pictures and peace out. So why 7,500 feet? Be, be in free fall with your kid. I got to know more about that. <laughs> it was the most surreal experience of my life where I felt like I was walking in a, in a dream cloud because I, I just, just my whole legacy from you know, my dad and my uncle, their history in skydiving and, you know, my grandfather who started back in the 82nd Airborne, right? So I had this whole lineage and it's like, I'm just, I feel it totally enveloped inside of me. Like, I don't want to miss a moment of this. So I, w I just felt like I was looking around, trying to take everything in and then I was freaked out. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, like if anybody in the world that I'd have my son, you know, jump with, it would obviously be my husband, but I could not help myself. I was like, I'm not even a tandem instructor. I'm checking the attachment points, the chest strap. And my husband's like, I got this wife. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, I'm all right. And because Benjamin was so confident, like in the airplane, he's like this. And, you know, I, I don't know where he got this, maybe watching videos, but I was sitting, we were in a Cessna, so I was sitting behind him and he was sitting on, on Ben's lap. And he just looks back at me and asks for a high five. And I like high five, I'm like, what? 
Like, and, and it was right before jump, like right before they were getting ready. I'm like, how do you even know like the time? Right. Cause he was just sitting around in the plane and just bopping Man, that's, along. That's and, just that fourth generation skydiver experience. That's wired into him by now. It's, it's, it was, it's so in his blood. And then when he got down, it, he was just like, mommy, I want to jump 99 times before I turn five. And I'm just going to be a badass. <laughs> like, I'm like, you are, honey. You didn't even have to skydive to be a badass. You're just a badass. And two weeks later, we went up for his second jump. And something changed for him on that second jump. And we had we had a little G4 for him, or a G3 helmet. And he wanted the visor down, just like a classic student thing. I need my goggles. I need my goggles. And he's like, I want my visor down. And it was really difficult for Ben to flip it up or me. So we're trying to show him like, no, keep it up. So your visor doesn't, and he just lost it. He just lost his shit and just started crying. And I like scoot back. I, you know, look at him. And then we started joking around, like flapping our visors shut and opening them. And then he was like, um, we got a jumpsuit from Dusty Hanks kids because they fly in the tunnel. So the, the collar was super tight on him and it just started freaking him out. Like everything was freaking him out. I was like, we don't have to go. We don't have to jump. And he's like, I want to jump. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I'm like trying not to have to do a go around here. Like this is a, a free payload here. We got to figure this out. And then once the door opened, he was fine. He was, it was just like, Repo was great. He didn't like looking up. He just liked to, he likes to look down. I think that's just a classic thing that we all go through and have to, you know, one day he'll learn to look up. But after that jump, he was like, I'm okay for a little bit, mommy. I'll wait till I'm older to skydive. And not, oh. I was real. I was relieved. <laughs> yeah, I bet. They're more stressful than world record jumps. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, I, I listened to your to your TED Talk and a few other, you know, read a couple articles uh, leading up to this, and I was curious how your perspective on skydiving changed from your first jump and from being around it so much as a kid and then actually going on your first solo jump by yourself. Did anything switch for you after that? Yeah, well, I envy those people who dream of skydiving, like dream of flight. Uh, or dream like to be Peter Pan and never had those dreams. Skydiving was just always there. It was just something we did. It was something that dad did. We were dragged around to competitions and there's a lot of times we were bored and I don't, I don't always have a correlation that it was fun. You know, sometimes at the parties it was fun because you know, music and everybody was on the ground and hanging out. So we got a lot of attention, which was great, but not skydiving. It was just long long days then when I so I made my first jump when I was five and I don't really have too many memories of it except I remember I remember enjoying it I, I don't really feel that I, I mean there's that fear I remember the fear and when I made my first solo skydive it was great it was it was almost how Benjamin did his first tandem I came home from I was a junior in high school and my dad just asked me when he's like, do you want to skydive today? I was like, sure. I didn't get a first jump course because I've been through about 5,000 of them, but I never went through one properly for me. <laughs> and so we kind of went over emergency procedures. Then we were up and at it. And that's kind of how it started. I never even thought 
twice about having a first jump course. But now looking back, I was like, what were we thinking? <laughs> I would never do that to anybody, even a family member. I would make them sit through a first jump course. Is there, but, is there anything else that you would change about your uh, beginnings in skydiving with the experience that you have now? No, because I had to want it for myself. And uh, two years later, my brother started jumping. My brother's Rook Nelson. And when he started jumping, he like he fell in love with it more than I did. And he would be at the drop zone every weekend because obviously we were still we were in high school. And every weekend he was out jumping. And every weekend I was out partying with my friends because I had a driver's license and I just didn't want, you know, I, I was, I always warred with my dad. We never really got along and, you know, classic battles family and stuff. So sometimes being on the drop zone was torture for me. And I saw my brother's love for the sport and I was really intrigued by it and not really sure. So I kind of was like, well, well, maybe I'll spend a day at the drop zone like him. And I did. And I don't know, I was just being young and my dad used to drive around in the golf cart telling guys that it would be better to go in than mess with his daughter. <laughs> so I was like, it just, I don't know, it never felt like it was for me or my own. And it took me quite some time. So I rack up a couple hundred gems by the time I'm 19 and I go to a boogie, not realizing that I was a load organizer. And this is before the classic, how we think of load organizers today. There wasn't, there wasn't that thing when I started. Mm -hmm. So I went to this boogie and uh, the, the drop zone owner, cause I was just jumping with everybody. I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I was like, whoa, like going to a new place. And, and the drop zone owner gave me a couple hundred bucks and I was 19. So that was a lot of money and I didn't under I was so confused because I thought we should be paying him for the slots mm -hmm. <laughs> and he goes no I really appreciate you brought you brought so much energy and it was so great you shared so much experience and and it, that was the shift that was the shift for me I realized that I can make a career or I didn't know how I did not know what that looked like back then because load organizing wasn't a thing and training for competitions was so expensive back then and we didn't have the coaches that everybody has today even though that's expensive too <laughs> I just decided that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to my drop zone, started just jumping my ass off, and that just kind of exploded from there. DJ, I bet you, you've got a question by now. I keep jumping in and hogging the conversation. <laughs> I have actually gone to technical support and have been over here working on the internet from the background, so I lost my oh. questions. Oh, good. All right, good. As long as long as I'm not being a hog, then I don't, I don't feel Dude, so bad. Dude, you got it covered, brother. You're good. All right, cool. <laughs> So how long did it take you to get a thousand jumps when, when you started, Melissa? Whew. I don't remember the timeline exactly. I'm guessing five, six, maybe even seven years. Okay. It, it took a while for the love, right? And even when I found the love for the sport and things shifted, I still had to figure some I had to figure some things out because there's one thing that I don't really talk about publicly, but I feel like being in quarantine, I, I've opened up a little bit more. I don't yeah. know. Social depravity, I don't know. But I, I also had a problem with drugs and alcohol. And it just, I, I had to, I don't know. It just really took a lot of my time away. I didn't really have a lot of focus. But I remember I 
moved away from my parents' house to go live in the suburbs of Chicago with my grandparents and try to go to college and try to do something because I was just trying to figure something out because I knew something wasn't right inside. I just didn't know what it was. And I remember coming home and having a conversation with my mom and my mom was like, just come home. I was like, but what am I going to do for work? Like, really? Like, am I really failing at college here? Like, am I not doing this? Cause I came home like with my woes and crying, like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And so my mom of course wants, you know, to bring me back into the fold. So she knows she can help and take care of me or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I did, I came back and I started working manifest. I started working the behind the scenes of a skydiving operation and it turned out I was really good at it and it made me feel really good and it made me want to do more. And then I started seeing everybody at the drop zone having so much fun. So there was like two parallels, right? I go to this event and it was amazing. You know, and I come back and move back home and, and do the thing. And then I'm like, how come I'm working in the office and I'm not jumping? And my dad said, get your AFF rating and you don't ever have to work in the office again. So that is about the time I started to hit a thousand jumps because I started training. And this is back in the day where examiners did not like free flyers at all. And I wore a free fly suit to stand my ground and I hid a weight belt underneath because I wore like free fly pants and a t-shirt. So I wear a weight belt underneath to like trick them because they were like trying to uh, change their fall rates on me. And But I don't know if they were messing with me a lot more because they didn't like my dad and they didn't like I was a free flyer because I failed the course three times and finally the fourth time. And Jay Maletsky was there. He was one of he was filming my eval, eval jumps and the one that I actually passed. It was like a momentous moment. <laughs> but that was in 2000, I think. So. How many jumps do you have now? I'm going to say about 11,100 something, okay. somewhere around there. But my jump numbers slowed down huge after having my son because – I was very clear when I had him, although I didn't want to give up skydiving, I didn't want to give up that lifestyle and the things that I do, I knew that he was going to be my priority. I'm, I just made that, so, yeah. Well, that's a pretty good uh, conscious decision to make. I don't think many parents make that uh, make that decision so clearly as, uh, <laughs> you know, making uh, a conscious and uh, making a change that they're aware of, I guess. It seems like a lot of people just go into parenthood like it's just another thing that's happening in life and maybe they're not getting their priorities in order before they go down that road. So I would say that's a good, good decision to make. Well, I was older too. I, we were, uh, I was 36 when I got pregnant and the other experience too is I, I was a kid on a drop zone. So my parents were working all the time and, and now that I'm older and I've played all those roles that they've been in, I understand, right? Like I have so much compassion and appreciation for everything that my parents have done. But I just knew for me from those experiences that I just wanted to do something different for Benjamin. And I want, I just, you know, we go out to the drop zone a bit. We haven't been obviously much this season just because we're rolling into the busy season, but this is going to be the year he's going to spend a lot more time on the drop zone because he's older and I want to teach him how to pack. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah. So he's he's five now? Yeah, he's five. He's actually going on six this August. So he okay. jumped a few months before he turned five. He was so adamant about that. He's like, Mommy, 
I want to jump when I'm a kid. Like, Benjamin, you'll be a kid when you're five. No, no, mommy. It is totally different. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right. Five is basically all grown up, right? I know. We're like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> Well, you, you talked a little bit about the, the level of AFF experience you have, and uh, I think DJ is finally uh, going to successfully pressure me into my own desire to become an AFF instructor. Uh, do you care to share any of your philosophy about, uh, about teaching solo students and what you love about it? Yes, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a couple of phases. It's really interesting. I really grew in, I think, in any part, in any part of the discipline, any part of the sport you will grow into. And as an AFF instructor, I did not realize how much I did not get because people assumed that I knew a lot having grown up on the drop zone. And I think back then, a lot of other parts were unknown how to teach, how to teach, and people assumed a lot. So as a load organizer, as that part of my life started to flourish I was traveling around all these places and I realized what people didn't even know people didn't even know how to hook up their three rings they didn't even know how to pull their reserve some people never sat in a hanging harness and I hear that still to this day but not as much as I used to so I think there's been a it's been a slow shift but it is a huge shift compared to when I first became a uh, yoga instructor <laughs> just got to be an instructor and I, I realized that I wanted to make sure that people knew that information and I never assumed that they knew anything. So not to beat a dead horse, but I went through, I just wanted to be super in, incredibly thorough. And that was from my own personal experience, not getting information and then hearing what people weren't learning. So I had a direct opportunity to infect change. And most of my teaching was at Skydive Chicago. Even after I left Skydive Chicago in 2006, I came back for a couple of years. So that was my first shift, right? And then I meet Ben Lowe. <laughs> and I thought I was a good instructor until I met him. That man he didn't care that I had a legacy in the sport. He didn't care about my last name. He didn't care how many world records I had. He kept me accountable because anytime I would slack in information or get too personal with a student or didn't set up boundaries, he would call me out on it. And I had nothing to, I had nothing to say except, you're right. You're absolutely right. Like, I don't ever get called out on my shit because people, you know, Melissa Nelson and bleh, <laughs> she knows everything. And But you know what? I don't. And I, that gave me so much more respect for Ben and who and what he stood for, what he does in this sport. And I had a new level of growth as an instructor. So from all that experience and the place I was at at that time, I asked, Ben and I approached my brother at the time and we asked if we could redesign the whole entire student program. So we did, we updated the entire program to include and be more specific as to what each level does. We had a, a dive plan, not just for free fall, but setting up, what are you gonna do for your, your gear checks? What size canopy are you jumping? Doing the flight plan, getting them ready in the mindset. And what I really love, what I believe 
one of the, my best assets is not telling, but teaching, right? Show me your gear check. Even from jump number one, I don't ever touch them unless I have to, right? So I don't look at their three rings and touch their chest strap like I'm so important, whatever. I look at them and I empower them. Show me. Yeah, you got that. Great job. Now show me your touching your handles or whatever. So, yeah, I, I just totally lost my train of thought. I got so in that moment. <laughs> I, well, the, the, I appreciate Oh, go ahead. I appreciate where you took that for a couple reasons. Number one, I, I've trained a lot of skydivers, including DZO's kids. And I want instructors to hear what you just said. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your lineage. It doesn't matter where you've been. As a matter of fact, it does matter. You probably know less because nobody will tell you anything because you should know everything. So I've made it a point when I teach it. And Zach Boyd is a DZO's kid I've taught. Now, I did give him the benefit of the doubt and let him try to know things. And the second point you made is I like to empower my students and ask questions. I don't tell them what they need to know. I know what I know. And I'm not impressed with anything I know, except I know I love my wife. I'm impressed with that. I'm impressed when they know. So instead of telling Zach in his first jump course, Zach, this is like, hey, Zach, tell me what you know about your gear check. Tell me what you know about getting on an airplane. Tell me what you know about... And then I can fill in the gaps and not waste any of our time. So I love the way that you do it. And I love the, the fact that Ben is not afraid to call you out back to it from the beginning. I have got so much respect, except for that mohawk. We, we had a problem with that sucker. I'm, I'm glad you got him to fix his haircut. Uh, that wasn't me. That was all him. I don't tell just Just like I don't tell my students what to do, I don't tell my husband what to do. <laughs> you guys are happily married. I love it. <laughs> Nick, you had something, bud? Oh gosh, no! I no, I lost whatever question I was going to ask. But um, so, so, Melissa, you you give a little bit of the inspiration from the teaching side and how to empower a student as an AFF instructor. I'm curious what advice you would give, and and I want to kind of frame it. Um, I'm an examiner, been doing it for a long time, and I passed my AFF course in free fly pants and a t-shirt. Um, and my, 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 uh, examiner said, that's not the best way to do it, but Hey, dress for success. If that's how you know how to fly, that's how you're going to fly. And God bless Jay Stokes for at least uh, allowing me to do that. He did recommend me learn to fly other tools and I have tools for everything. Um, I like today's modern age. Some people are more powerful in their free fly suits. Some people are more powerful in their W suits, the right tool for the right job that set aside flying skills, I do think belly skills are paramount and super helpful to AFF. What advice would you give an inspiring AFF instructor like Nick? <laughs> I do believe, I wish I would have gone down this route. So any student that gets their A license, especially from me, and a couple of them will attest to this, I encourage them to master belly flying or do it until they're bored and then go try free flying because I really feel like belly skills you always have to track away your students are going to fly on their bellies especially if you're going to be a coach and if you just free fly you're not going to be a very effective coach so uh, learning that element is, is incredibly important However, I also encourage people to explore free flying because I feel for me, being able to free fly, there was sometimes because of my size or weights 
that I could get to a student quicker if I knew a different orientation. There's sometimes I, I came down to students in, in a head down position or a, um, uh, a head up position. And, and sometimes, you know, and I would never condone this. And in fact, Ben shakes his head when I say this, but sometimes I would just free fly with a student and never be on my belly. But that was a horrible example. And that was before I met the Ben Lowe. <laughs> So I'm always I'm always on my belly when I'm with students, or I try to. But there have been a couple of situations where I had to do stop spins, and had I not had the free fly skills, I don't know if I would have been able to get down to them. But I think that comes down to your personality and your what you know. I don't feel like you have to be a free flyer at all to be a AFF instructor. You definitely have to be a belly, good belly flyer to be an AFF instructor. I just think knowing how to free fly will enhance the skills and tools that you'll need to be an effective flyer because it's not all about, you know, obviously teaching on the ground. It's you, you've got to be there. That's another thing I like about Ben is because at Scott of Chicago, I think you guys do the same, right? You always wear a camera. You always wear your GoPros. So we, yep. we do the same thing, too. So Ben and I, those two years at Scott of Chicago, I think that was 2011, 2012, us instructors, the AFF instructors, would sit down and we would debrief ourselves with the students, not just the students. How could we have done better? And Ben would always say, you got to get closer. You got to get closer. I want you to be a, not an arm length away. I want you to be a finger. And it was a challenge, right? It was super fun. And not only that, but he would challenge us under the canopy too. Let's have an accuracy contest with the uh, instructors because we need to show and demonstrate to our students, you know, how we can do it too. Because here we are teaching all these things, but can we really do it? So we would go land way off in BFF or BF whatever, BFE, in the people <laughs> with our students to show them that we could do it too, you know? So I love that. I loved, I loved getting down and, and not being a rock star, but showing that I can do these simple things as a rock star, right? Like, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I love that and, and I take that element when I do world records. All of that stuff that I learn, like all the things, right? I learned how to do behind the scenes in skydiving. I learned to be an AFF instructor. I've been a load organizer, now world record organizer. Now I'm on a demo team. So all these little experiences help me do each aspect better. So I, I do want to get back to, uh, to world records just because you've got a very impressive number of them. <laughs> but uh, in, in one of the articles that I read, you... Uh, you kind of talked about the importance of finding a good coach and it seems like everyone, even someone with only a few skydives is very willing to share what they think they know about skydiving. So let's just say that uh, I'm interested in, in pursuing bigger skydiving goals. How do I go about finding the right person to teach me those things? I feel that we are so fortunate these days because when I was learning, there was nobody and now there are, um, mentors literally around the world. I would see what events people are putting on and see what you gravitate towards to know what those goals look like. So if you are interested in doing big ways, no matter what discipline you choose. So I think if I were a newbie and I wanted to be on one of the P3 events that happen out at Skydive Paris, I would annoy the hell out of Dan BC. <laughs> 
And I would ask him all the questions until he sent me away to somebody else. And then if he recommended another coach, then I would know that coach had Dan BC's approval and I would learn everything that I could from that person. And, and I think you can do that with any discipline of the sport. Follow the events that you're inspired by. See who organizes those events. Start at the top and then find your way. And then, and then there's, it's a journey, right? Like there, you're, I know some people don't jive with me. They'll they'll find me and they'll be like, "You're just you're you're not cool," <laughs> and I'm totally cool with that. And and I'm not out doing that sort of thing as much. I'm very I'm very uh, hyper focused on the goals that I have right now. So it, it because not everyone clicks with everyone. You still have to keep seeking out those those mentors. And sometimes they're right in front of you and you don't even know it. I remember when I was getting really good and at Scatter Chicago, no one gave me the time of the day. I left Scatter Chicago, went to other drop zones and people rolled the red carpet out for me, super excited to learn from me. And then I go back to Scatter Chicago and I'd be like, how, how come nobody wants to jump with me? <laughs> so sometimes even at your own drop zone, there could be somebody there that you can learn from or, or talk to an instructor. I feel like after that, um, student learns and gets their A license, sometimes they're like, oh, do I, do I even like talk to my instructor anymore? Like, do I have to like be out on my own in the big kid sandbox or whatever? But I feel I, even with, I follow some of my students still to this day. And I love the fact that so many of my students that I've taught since the year 2000 are still in the sport to this day. And that's something I'm super proud of. And I'm super proud of all of them. But I feel that offering myself as a source of resource for them because some of them are just, they go into this big confusing big world and now with social media and YouTube and all these Facebook groups, like it's so easy to get lost in all the advice. Like what kind of canopy should I jump? I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> don't go to a Facebook group for that answer. Go to your instructors. <laughs> and if you don't like your instructors, find a different one. <laughs> One quote that I found of yours that I really liked was that you teach your students uh, as though they're going to spend a, a lifetime in the sport. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I am so, oh, I just got the goosebumps. So one of my most proudest moments, I believe it was the 164 way, two of my students were on that record and they were both girls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. That's, that's uh, if you're a good enough instructor to keep them around and, and push them to that level, I think that says a whole lot. Yeah, but it also has to do with them, right? Like you, ha I love to teach them as if. So even in the student, like when I would teach an AFF first jump course, I would always reference the goal, right? We're teaching you this kind of exit because if you do a big way, you're going to need to know how to dive down, right? Like give the context of yeah. why they're learning that and then make them excited <laughs> about that goal. And same thing, or we need to learn how to fly our parachutes like this because when you learn how to swoop, we always have to be careful with that one. So within context with the right student, you know, you can say things that, that kind of like plant these little seeds because mm -hmm. there's so many cool things that we can inspire them. You just have to find what they gravitate towards and they'll tell you. And then lead, lead, find, make that path for them. And then you kick them out of the nest and see where they go. <laughs> so speaking of those uh, world records, how many of those do you have now? 20-something? Uh, 23. And we had, well, we have two more this year, but 
Um, Project 19 got postponed to October. And so far, Matt and I are braving the idea that we'll still be able to host the Vertical Sequential World Record in June. So, fingers crossed. Did that you mean Matt Fry? Be <laughs> Matt Fry, you and Matt? Yeah, so Matt Fry and I are organizing the Vertical Sequential World Record. And then okay. I am on the organizing team for Project 19 with Amy Shimalecki, Sarah Curtis, Sharon Harnoy, Pilcher, Anna Moxness, and Domi. Tiger. What a pretty stellar lineup. I know. It's amazing. Nick? Do you, you guys are still uh, pretty hopeful that that event's going to happen this year, though? For project, for either one of them? For, for Project 19. Let's start there. Yeah, we are. And I feel that if we aren't able to do it in October, we're going to do it whenever we can do it. Like, it'll happen. Yeah. When just, was it originally scheduled for? In July at Skydive Chicago. Okay. And I was so looking forward to that because we scheduled the sequential record right before the Project 19. So I was all ready to do back-to-back -back world records. Like, never done that before in my career. And I'm like, oh, I was a little stressed out about the idea. And then I kind of got excited about it. And then it was taken away from me. <laughs> Did you guys do the sequential world record there before? Wasn't that yeah. a birthday party of yours? Yes, yes. So for my 40th birthday party... I decided that I wanted to get 39 of my closest friends and do some fun sequential stuff because I was turning 40 and fuck yeah. And Matt Fry comes to me and he goes, you know, Melissa, he, we haven't done like a vertical sequential world record in a really long time. I haven't been really in this leadership, like taking on an, a new event like this in a really long time. And I looked at Matt and I was like, of course we should make this a world record. <laughs> I totally forgot how much work it is. Oh my gosh. So we were unsuccessful, but I had an amazing 40th birthday. And I do not like to fail. So we had to go back and do it again. So we waited another year, got everyone ready. And we were a little bit more focused. We started doing camps and all this stuff. And then and then we got two world records out of the deal. So nice. we also realized, because when I organized that one for my birthday, the rules were written by belly flyers. So we were so limited on what kind of formations we can do, and I was so frustrated. And I thought after my birthday event, I would never do it again. But then Amy and Sarah asked me down to Florida for the women's vertical sequential record. And I'm like, of course I'm going to do that. <laughs> so I went down there and helped, when, helped him with that. And, and I was frustrated again with the rules because I'm like, oh, we could do so many cool things, but it doesn't work within the rules. And then we do the event. Uh, I think it's two years ago now. And then I'm like, okay, this is the third time I've done it. I said I wasn't going to do it again, but if we are going to do this again, we have to rewrite the rules. And this time I had Matt with me. Thank goodness. Matt is Matt is an extraordinary person. He is so intelligent, smart, observant, and talented. And he was the best, he was the best person to, because I'm so busy, I can't sit down and write rules. I wrote rules once. I, I wrote all the rules for the Vertical Sequential World Record and pitched it to become an actual discipline. Um, and I didn't want to do that again. And Matt was willing to. He did all the technical writing. He did tons of uh, phone calls and meetings and research and, and wherever he got stuck, that's when he would give me a call and I'd help like 
move things forward wherever we need to go. And so together, he and I were able to pass new rules. So we had this sequential re record coming up is going to be us working with our new rules, which I'm so excited about because now we can do cool formations that we are really proud of. Can you tell us maybe some of the changes in those rules that, that make it uh, mesh better with free flying? So the way that the rules were written before was that there had to be a certain percentage of grip changes. And I believe, oh man, this is not on the top of my head right now. So there was a certain percentage of grip changes and then uh, there were, you had to show an inter which is sometimes incredibly difficult the bigger you get, and it's hard to key those uh, points. Um, and then there were, you can move like a line of like four people, no more than four people. So in order to work with those rules, like we couldn't move much. There was like, there was not much that we can do because with the number of people that we had and 30%, it, it just didn't really allow for much. So basically we took away the inter so we don't have to show the move in between the next point, which for free flying makes so much more sense. Um, and keying makes it so much more easy, right? So we don't have to wait. It was super stressful at this last one because we had we had like, okay, everyone in the base, keep shaking your head no, and then shake your head yes when your side is built. And so you saw this, you saw this, and you're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell. They're just bobbleheads in the base. And then they, then we were like, okay, only two people are going to do that. And they'll just get nods. Oh, my gosh. It was, like, so, so difficult. So and this is just to follow the rules about timing and when the grips are separated and how it has to look between the two points. Yeah. So okay. we're, exploring, we're exploring. There's a lot of uh, – some people are really into tech, and they want these cameras that flash – so, and maybe like having headpieces so everyone's hearing this and then there'll be a flash that keys the point. I mean, there's some really cool ideas being thrown around to make these keys a lot more clear. But with the new rules, it actually makes it a little bit easier because we don't have to wait for certain, the timing to be exactly right to show the points in between. And then I think, oh, I don't remember, like the percentage is not 30%, the percentage is lower, so we can do other things. The other thing in the old rules is you couldn't build a round within a round, right? Mm -hmm. But now you can. So they had, we had to connect the formation all the way around. But now we don't have to do that. So we can build like four rounds within a certain, you know, as long as it fits in the frame of the video or something like that. So, yeah. So how do you feel about that Project 19 uh, event coming up? Are you feeling like you're, uh, like these camps have paid off? Do you have a pretty solid crew of, of ladies around you? Yeah, I have only run a couple camps myself, and I don't know a lot of the girls, but I know a lot of people trying out that were students of mine, which I think is absolutely incredible. I love to see people's motivation I love to see, you know, how far the people that I have, you know, been to those couple of camps. Um, I feel, I don't know how I feel yet. So it's really hard to, to get a grasp because I haven't watched a lot of that um, growth to see where people are right now. Mm -hmm. but the cool thing that we're doing right now is I'm feeling a little more connected because we are doing Project 19 link ups. 
where we are meeting the teammates. So we have these Zoom meetings where we are meeting about 20 of the girls that have invites at a time because otherwise it would just be way too many people. And they're getting to know us a little bit. And it's nice. So we've done we've done three of them already. We have another one this weekend. And yeah, so following a couple more girls that I didn't know, seeing their flying skills. And what's getting me really excited is the mission behind Project 19 and learning a lot more about um, the suffragist movement because I feel so incredibly privileged because I grew up at in a sport where I was just accepted. I wasn't shunned. There's no pay gap and because we don't get paid anything. Nobody gets paid anything in this sport. <laughs> so I, I, and women were pretty much, I don't know, I felt like we were put on pedestals and we were appreciated in the sport. I know not everyone's experience is the same, but that's how it felt for me. And Learning more about the suffragist movement, I have so much more appreciation for the women who fought these horrific battles so that we could have the right to vote and and other other privileges to live the lives that we do now. And we just did a Zoom last night with the author Elaine Weiss, who wrote the women's or uh, the final hour, the women or the women's hour with the suffragist movement where the final state made, uh, agreed to pass, you know, the 19th amendment, which is a hundred years ago. And that was an amazing story and so inspiring. And the women who, these historians that are sharing this story and these authors are super inspired by what we're doing. And I just thought it was so cool that we have this reciprocal relationship, um, and it just, again, I'm like, I can do this through skydiving, you know, that we can uh, educate more people about this movement and what these women have done before us so we can be here to jump out of a plane to celebrate them. Like, how cool is that? I just, I'm so moved and, and so appreciative that, that we can do this in our sport. That's awesome. I, uh, it's, it's cool to see how quickly skydiving as an entire sport and especially women's roles in skydiving has uh, accelerated. It seems like I, I don't know. It seems like not very long ago that there weren't very many people flying on their heads at all. And now it's like you're telling me you're building a hundred way with with women skydivers. Like how how incredible is that? Like how 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 far and how fast have we come? I think it's really neat. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it's absolutely so, neat. So you're involved with a company called uh, Drop Zone Marketing. Yes. So that's what do you. That's my other secret life. <laughs> tell, tell me your secrets. I want to know all about it. <laughs> I feel incredibly fortunate in that avenue as well. The he He's going to shake his head when I say this, but he is like the marketing guru of skydiving. And he is when you say he, who do you mean? James Labari. He's the mm -hmm. owner of Drop Zone Marketing. And he is just, he has... So my dad, right, he was a pioneer, not in just the um, developing technology for the sport and techniques, but he also was a great drop zone owner and marketer. He was so charismatic, and he started to teach people other drop zones on how to do things, right? Because Spaceland's an example, and Scott of Carolina is an example, and that's where James started jumping, and the owner there, Danny Smith, was also good friends with my dad, and 
Danny need Danny needed a couple of rigs and a plane and my dad's like I'm sending some your way and so Danny tells James the story of my dad and then I go randomly go to one of James's uh, workshops and I just fell in love with his philosophy because it was all the good stuff that my dad used to do but updated and James isn't a controversial character like my dad because sometimes <laughs> There is some stuff, right? And I I just got to a time in my life and I approached James and I just asked him if I could join the team. And not just because of my name, he was like, well, you have to do an interview. You're going to have to meet my team. And I was like, whoa, like this is legit. Like this is a legit agency. Like I'm doing this. And so I did. I flew out to uh, South Carolina and it was like rolling out the red carpet. Like James practices what he preaches. And I was just so impressed. And I was like, I have to get this job. <laughs> like, this is going to be an amazing company to work for. And it, it, it I've uh, celebrated three years in February working for him. And I get to work remotely. And he has an incredible team that's just, he surrounds himself with people like him. And I appreciate that because we all work well together. Um, we do work in and out of the skydiving industry. I get to do a lot of behind the scenes stuff, which is great. Um, just because it's my nerdy side. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we get to help a lot of skydiving uh, centers, which is, which is amazing. That's something that's never ceased to surprise me with skydiving, whether it's competition or whether it's marketing, whether it's training, it seems like skydiving is a sport where everyone really is out to help people, even when it's someone that they're competing with. Yeah. And so that's, that's cool to hear that that holds true inside of uh, DZ marketing as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe, um, there are two different ways that I want to go. One, I want to get into the, we have a lot of new jumpers that listen to the show that may not know the story and controversy about your dad, Roger Nelson. So I, I do want to go down that road, but just because we're still on the, the topic of, of DZ marketing, what, what are a few things that uh, any drop zone could do to do a better job of, of sharing who they are with the world? I think that we often try to sell too much. And we don't often tell our story that I think when we sit down and listen to, so just think about when you go to the bonfire, right? I know we don't have a lot of bonfires as much anymore, but what are the stories from jumpers that you love to hear? How did this drop zone come to be? I think the history of places are, is so important and kind of paying honor to that history of a skydiving center and then knowing more about the drop zone owner the people that make up your skydiving center i think telling the story of the people does so much more than trying to sell hey 99 tandems you know mm -hmm. what i mean like yeah that could be the hook line and sinker but i think we do that too many times more than we try to tell our story and nick i love your videos because they do just that like i cry every video you make so i have i'm like okay i have to be in the mood i have to be in the right mood to cry right now thank you that means a lot because honestly almost every time i sit down to even before i'm, I'm putting the, the video together during the interview with somebody i think about what sort of questions i'm going to ask that person to drag them into that deep water like how am i going to get this person to cry with me or at least show their emotions so that I can share that with other people. So oh, I'm, I'm glad, even if it's only working on you, I'm glad it's working on someone. <laughs> oh, 
oh, you got me. I have, I have to be seriously. I'm like, okay, I got to save this video because I, I can't cry right now. <laughs> well, that's that's yeah, very flattering. Thank you. Goosebumps, everything. That's what people need to do. Like they need to, and I think we do. Um, we tell too much, just like we we talked about with the students. I think we need to ask more of the community as well instead of like force feeding stuff. Just think about how many emails you get in your inbox. How are you going to stand out from every other scattering center? And I think if you're going to tell stories, you need to do it in video form, you know? I don't read, I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> not, not that it's lazy really, but it's like, man, when I, when I even go to a news article, even even now, when it's stuff with, about the coronavirus, where there's all these numbers and there's all these things to, to read through and learn about, I still scroll through the article and I look for the play button. Yeah. Because to me, that's just that's just an easier way to, a more concise way to absorb the same information that's on that screen. Yeah, I do a lot of, I go to PIA, the Australian Parachute Federation, and a couple of other organizations where we talk, we do a lot of marketing uh, workshops. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that we try to tell people is to do it on video. If you're going to do it, spend the money on video because more people are watching video than they are reading articles. I forget what the stats are these days. And um, it's going to be so much more worth your time. Like you can always add the text into it, but yeah, videos, videos are king in marketing. Yeah, You can use that description a little bit, right? But no one wants to read an article. Show, show me the, show me the eye candy. That's what I want to see. Yeah, exactly. You can write the article for SEO, but make sure the video is at the top. <laughs> yeah, there you go. SEO. That's search engine optimization for for the lay folks. <laughs> Indeed. So let's go. Oh, go ahead, DJ. Well, I want to stick with that marketing conversation for one second. And Nick and I actually do a little social marketing between Gravity Lab and other companies we work with. How important do you say? things like Instagram is versus Facebook because uh, of that visual eye candy. Yes. Yeah, so I, first of all, I'm going to take a step back from there, but how many social media platforms out there, right? Not only do we have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok now, and I have so many people that, uh, that are like, I am on every channel because they feel like being everywhere is the most important. However, if you do a quick search, you will find the number, like the top five platforms and then the two that dominate over everything, like exponentially, is Facebook and Instagram. So there's no need to be everywhere. I just, I talk about going where the people are. That's Facebook, Instagram, and I would even include YouTube in there as well. Because YouTube is the second biggest search engine behind Google. So if people are going to find you, they're going to find you one of those three ways. And if people say they aren't using Facebook, the statistics are there saying that's where the people that they go by active users. And I forget there's like a billion people or whatever on that platform. And then not having the same content on your Facebook and on Instagram, doing completely different strategies for both. Instagram is the visual showcase of what you do, right? Like not wordy and but you have to have hashtags because otherwise instagram won't work right 10 to 11 is great 
And then Facebook, you can, you can post articles. That's where you can share the videos. You can tell a little bit more. But Instagram should be very simple and streamlined and beautiful, showcasing something beautiful. I get so frustrated when I see people just post the same thing on both. I'm like, well, what's the point I'm being on both platforms? But what does it say? Scott Evan rocks? So Scott Evan kicks ass. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shout out to our, our buddy, Mark Fields, who uh, passed away. He, he would always wear uh, tank tops with Scott Evan kicks ass, and we just happen to have some of his koozies here. Nice. Nice. But yeah, does that answer your question, DJ? Yeah, no, that that does. It's for me, social media is something I've never really been great at or natural at, and, and I don't. It's odd because people who know me know I'm on social media a lot, but I don't have a natural desire or propensity for. I just am good at. I, I just know how to deal with. And I'll make a quick plug for you. Uh, I actually learned a lot of my current social media tricks about three years ago in Chattanooga and I sat in on uh, actually your uh, seminar in, in social media. So I learned a lot just sitting in on that and I know you have a lot to share. So if you guys or gals are ever around listening, have a chance to hear uh, or, or, or listen to Melissa speak, it's highly worth it for sure. Nick, what did you have, bud? I've been reading a fair bit recently and um, it's this you. little, <laughs> shut up, <laughs> it's this little white book that was lent to me by one Stephen Boyd. And it's a seminar that was given by Roger Nelson in 1999. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a little bit dated, but it's geared towards drop zone management. And I mean, you could call it, um, you know, business structure and, and, um, and uh, marketing. And it's amazing how, even though it's written in 1999, how, how relevant a lot of it is uh, today. And I think one thing that we do really well and that um, I've seen Sky of Chicago do really well is focus on teaching as opposed to selling and how much more uh, people are interested when you're when you're just teaching about this thing that you're passionate about instead of trying to, to sell them that that cheap second tandem how much of a difference it makes in the success of the business mm -hmm. and um, and probably because it's very uh, connected is makes a, a big difference in the happiness of the customers and people's desire to, to continue to learn absolutely I also just to expand on that and, and the conversations that we, we've had about, you know, my dad and James, is James is also big on the culture, right? It, it, it's not just about getting people through the door and getting them out the door, but the experience that people have when they're there. So my dad's biggest thing was teaching. James is, is the whole experience. What does it look like when you walk into the skydiving center? Is it a mess with unpacked parachutes and broken rubber bands everywhere? Does it smell like beer from the night before? Like what are people walking into when they're going for their first jump experience? And then James has some great articles about drop zone bathrooms. And I know a lot of drop zones have upgraded their bathrooms since this came out, but you can judge how a place is by going to the bathroom. Is there toilet paper everywhere? Are the floor is sticky and gross. And is the hand towels restocked, you know? And it is. It's so true. When the bathrooms are nice, you really generally have a great experience wherever you go. And you want to think about that first jump student. You, you, instead of thinking about them as a number, thinking about them as a future person to skydive with, right? Like, let's bring more friends into this fold. Like, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, the longer I spend in skydiving, the more people I see start to learn to skydive and then just blow right past me. And now I want to go on jumps with them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
do you want to talk a little bit? Uh, your your TED talk uh, talked about your dad a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Um, for for our for our newer jumpers who don't know the story of Roger Delson and Skydive Chicago, would you care to indulge us a little bit? I will give some cliff notes. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my grandfather. I'm gonna start with my granddad, and he's like I said, he started in the um, Second World War. And then my dad and my uncle started jumping when my uh, my grandfather came out. And they both just fell in love with the sport. And they would do whatever they could to just be involved. He would go pack parachutes. He would pick jumpers up. He um, And my dad wasn't old enough to skydive at the time. My uncle was a little bit older, so he started jumping. And my dad would carry his rig to the plane, right? He would do anything just to be involved and to make money to jump. When he got old enough, he started selling weed. (laughs) (laughs) And and so began his career. Um, I guess I don't have to be shy about it. We published two, three books about it, (laughs) but he, he, yeah, he got into the, the drug smuggling trade and skydiving. So he was a pioneering skydiver as well as a very controversial character. Controversial not just because of his drug smuggling, but his personality. People either loved him or hated him, and he was a force to be reckoned with. He, If he didn't like something, something in the sport, he would go off and change it. Meaning, back in the day, they were jumping round main parachutes and round reserve parachutes. But then the sport parachute jump, jumpers were wearing or uh, using square mains, and my dad thought, well, how come we don't do that for students? Because if that's what they're going to go jump, why don't we train them from the very beginning? And uh, the people of our national organization at the time said, no. Well, my dad said, fuck you. I'm going to create my own organization and I'm going to do it my way anyways. So he started doing it that way. And then sport parachute jumpers were wearing square reserves. And he goes, well, we should do that for our students. And he goes to the national organization and they're like, nope, my dad said, ah, fuck you. I have my own organization. I'm just going to do what I want to do anyways. So he started doing that. And then rip cords were the thing. And my dad was like, well, experienced jumpers don't wear rip cords and they have to do a transition training. Why don't we just teach them how to do that? So he went and he got a lot, he got less flack. People were a little bit more open to hear him. And him and Master Rigger Kirk Smith designed the still in use today BOC uh, container uh, for instructor and for main side and reserve side instructors. Uh, So that was his innovation. And then he wanted to jump elliptical canopies for students, which most people are terrified to do still to this day, but I think it's amazing. That's all I've known. And going back to like the, if I go somewhere and I do an AFF jump and they're on navigators, I'm like, how, how do you fly? How do you fly a navigator? <laughs> Cause I'm so used to teaching people on saber twos and it's still to this day used at Scott of Chicago because my dad was a believer of teaching students and what they're actually going to use as an experienced jumper to get rid of that gap of the unknown. Because once people, there's a couple of reasons why people would get out of the sport back in the day is because they had no idea how to transition to be an experienced jumper. It was like a salmon swimming upstream. So my dad wanted to bridge that gap and bring people together. So he 
was a man of big dreams. So he opened up a skydiving center called Skydive Sandwich back in the day. It's a legit name of a town in <laughs> south of Chicago. And he was sentenced to federal prison in, oh my gosh, I, I don't even remember what year, but I know I was in- Eight, 87 is what I think I Thank saw. Thank you. <laughs> it is, it's 87. I, have I, I remember what grade I was in. I don't even remember the year. That's how, that's how I referenced the timeline. So he is sentenced to federal prison. He uh, was sentenced to a 10-year term. And my, because my dad was super charismatic and the way he was, he made friends with everybody. He was like the load organizer in the prison, like making friends with everybody. My dad was also a black belt karate guy. I don't know what you call them, but so he knew how to <laughs> And so what do you call it? He wasn't a what sort, of, what sort of martial arts was he doing? Um, Ishing Ru? Is that Ishing Ishing Ru? Gosh, that doesn't ring a bell for me. Let's just call him a ninja. Yeah. He's a ninja. <laughs> he, had, he had the ninja skills and a, and, a, and a temper, so he wasn't a guy that you really wanted to mess with, but he was a great guy to be a friend with, and he also played the drums, so they, you know, had all these get-together parties and whatever at the at the um, prison where they'd make hooch and hide it up in the ceiling and stuff. Like, you know, my dad was a fun guy. Frustrating and hard sometimes, but you know, super fun and adventurous. So anyways, he saved two. So he was, this is, this is the reason why he saved two people's lives. He was in prison in Rochester, Minnesota, where the Mayo Clinic is. And so they have a lot of prisoners that need medical care at the prison there. And he was a janitor, I believe. And there was someone, I don't know, some choking or something, and he saved their life. I forget what the story of the other one was. So we got an incredibly reduced sentence. And back in the day, I only believe that you served half the time anyway. So he only served four and a half years of that 10-year sentence. And then he came out and he he was so funny. Like, I remember having these conversations. I was 16 when he got out of prison. And he would be like, Mr. I don't know what to do with my life. All I know is skydiving. And, and I was like, well, just open up a skydiving center. <laughs> I'm like, why is he consulting his 16-year-old daughter? And he never, ever talked to me that way. So I was like super confused. And I, I had zero answer except do what you're passionate about. And so he did. And he opened up uh, in a little town called Ottawa. And it was just this little rundown field. And then he had this dream. He saw this property for sale. It was alongside a river and just open fields for miles. And it had this rolling hill that went down to the river. And it was just a beautiful space. And he decided to open up a skydiving resort. He drew it all on a napkin, which is still posted at the Halls of Skydive Chicago to this day. And he did it. Everyone said he couldn't do it. He ran into millions of challenges. Uh, he used skydiver work, not union work. So the union, I don't know if it was the union. I'm pretty convinced it was the union, but they were never convicted but they destroyed all the heavy equipment that was borrowed and they would often block the road into skydive chicago wouldn't let people in they tried to burn one of the otters but jet fuel doesn't burn right away because it has to be really really hot but not a lot of people know that so yes he he it was like one battle after another trying to open up the new drop zone and it took him uh took us over two years to open it up and then I believe it was Memorial Weekend in 1998, we opened the doors to the new skydive Chicago, what it is today. And then my dad died in a skydiving accident in 2003. 
Then my brother and I took over Scout of Chicago, and then I left in 2006. So that was more than a nutshell. <laughs> but uh, was... you published a couple books about this whole story, right? Yes, and they're both available on Amazon, Sugar Alpha and Charlie Bravo. Are there two parts to Sugar Alpha? There are. Do you have a second I can show you? Show you. Yes, okay. we got all night, lady. Take a sip of your beer. Hold on, I'll be right back. It's uh, it's, it's hard actually, kombucha that I'm stealing from my girlfriend. Oh, and you're you're drinking bubble water, aren't you? I got Lacroix, so I'm you know I'm getting at it pretty heavy tonight. It's 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 a crusher of the evening for me. So this is the slip cover I designed for all three books because I ran this on Indiegogo to support the project. Is he wearing a pirate hat? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, just his just his hair. No helmet. Oh wow! Okay. Look at how baggy that jumpsuit is. It's pretty pretty retro. Okay, so the first book, whoo, the first book in the series is Sugar Alpha. And this is my dad's story, his tell-all of his drug smuggling days. <laughs> I don't want to tell the good stuff because it's all in here, and I don't want to ruin the story. And then the follow-up to answer all the questions that I just, you know, snuck in there and you'd want to know the answers to, we published here in Charlie Bravo. So this one's a lot more... It's a darker story than Sugar Alpha. So Sugar Alpha is like this fun-loving, you know, pot smuggling book and this epic drug run. And then this is where the shit gets real. Hmm. <laughs> and then for those that supported the Indiegogo campaign, I created this book. It's the appendices to both books because the other books do not have any photos. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of fun. And I wanted to do something to give a really big thank you to those that supported us. So these have some pictures. They kind of go along with the story. So my dad was also a world record organizer. So that's in Freeport in Quincy, Illinois. And then I, I published the original version of Sugar Alpha before I edited it, so you know how good of a writer I am, <laughs> or how terrible my dad is, I don't know. And then my dad kept meticulous records, so these are indictment statements from when he was getting indicted, which goes along some of the stories which almost seem outlandish, and you're like, no fucking way would that happen. This is where I got a lot of the storyline from, is from the indictment statements. And because my dad wrote the original manuscript, um, but he wrote it as if people knew him. But I knew when I was publishing this that not a lot of people knew him. So he also kept journals. He has terrible handwriting, but he kept um, so many journals that I kept him in there. And then these are just articles from back in the day. So I just put this all together here because I thought it would be fun um, to share. And then my editor, Robin Hyde, he did an interview because he used to work for Skydiving Magazine back in the day. So he did an interview with him that Skydiving Magazine gave us pub um, permission to publish in here where he talks more in detail about all of those um, pioneering phases that he went through in developing scattering technology. So it's a pretty cool read. Well, I bet you have told this story a lot of times just because your dad is such a prominent figure in skydiving. I'm sure you get a lot of questions about kind of what we're talking about right now. Do you have a favorite story about your dad, whether that's related to skydiving or not? Hmm. And no, people don't ask me a lot of questions. 
<laughs> so I'm, ha I'm happy to answer them. I don't know if people are intimidated because, you know, I'm so ferocious. <laughs> you are very vicious. I'm, I'm afraid right now, even though we're only talking over the computer. Um, let's see, a favorite story of my dad. Oh, my gosh. You know, I have some moments because my dad and I didn't really get along. So there's three moments that come to mind. One moment was my dad was a pilot. He also flew helicopters. And I wasn't cool in school, like, at all. Back in the day, skydiving was not how we look at skydiving today. It was an outcast sport. People didn't revere what we did. They just thought we were reckless and dangerous and adrenaline junkies. And so that's kind of, and I grew up in a small town. And on top of that, my dad was a convicted felon. So I was the girl at school who was the convicted felon's daughter. I was not known as a skydiver's daughter. But my dad one day, when he got out of prison, he decided it would be really cool that he picked me up in the baseball field in the helicopter. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. That's a win cool, for right? dad right there. Like, That's awesome. I was, I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, dad, you're trying way too hard to make me cool. <laughs> <laughs> but we also, my brother and I also got to jump into our uh, homecoming games. We did soccer. We didn't do football, but we jumped into our home, homecoming games, which is pretty cool. Mm. Another memory I have of him was my, my dad and I, met, we didn't, after I graduated AFF, we never really jumped together. Same thing with my brother. When we were younger, we jumped together all the time. And then we didn't really jump with each other much at all. And then for some random spur of the moment, uh, I think my dad was like, hey, Root, go grab a rig. You know, mister, go grab a rig. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, we're going to do a three-way. I'm like, okay. You know, I'm like, am I, like, I always thought I was in trouble with him. <laughs> <laughs> so we just did this tracking dive where we were just, like, going over, like, no plan. We just, this is what we did, like, flying on our backs. And it was just, like, one of those just surreal uh, moments that just were imprinted in my brain. Like I think about that moment a lot. Like I, I don't know why it wasn't really anything special. It was just that moment that we shared together. And then there was the moment uh, when he died. Is uh, well, two weeks before he died, he told my brother and I that you know if I die, don't worry. I lived an amazing life, and he pretty much showed my brother the ins and outs, my brother and myself, the ins and outs of Scottish Chicago, as if he were passing over the torch. And my brother and I kind of laughed about that. We're like, dad's never going to let go. He would micromanage us running the drop zone, you know? <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then two weeks later, he, he passed away. And I was like, it was such a pivotal moment. Like, wow. like he knew that was going to happen. And he prepared us. And, you know, he died on a Friday. We mourned on Saturday. And Rook and I were up in the office working on Sunday. And Rook's still there, right? Yeah, Rook still runs the drop zone. And he does amazing. He does great. And I just, I love Scott of Chicago. It will always be home. And I try to do an event there every year. That's why the Vertical Sequential Record is there because of my association there. It's just a great place I don't know. It's just super easy to run events there when there's weather. It's just, you know, you have the pond, you have, you know, you can stay there. It just makes everything super easy. I don't know if I just feel like that because I love it when everything is at the drop zone and you don't have to leave. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the, uh, it's a tiki bar, right? Isn't that <laughs> the tiki bar? I, I have been enjoying some of Rook's, uh, quarantine, uh, dance parties as well. So yeah, me too. Keep it up. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so now you're a business owner of a yoga studio. Yeah. So when I learned to skydive, my perspective of what skydiving was really changed. And now that I've worked in skydiving for a while, it's even different than when I started skydiving. Have you had, I'm sure you didn't have that revelation in skydiving since you grew up around it, but I wonder if you've had a similar revelation based around uh, yoga with your experiences there. Yeah. I guess maybe a shorter version of that question is, has, has your thought about what yoga is changed since when your, your friends first said, hey, come check out yoga to what it is now having, you know, taught a lot of classes and, and owning the yoga studio? Oh my gosh, absolutely. In fact, I wish I would have delved into it even more deeper sooner because of the correlation, because I feel that there's so much value in doing yoga. And and, and I'll break it down. Like, I am not the yogi that burns incense and has an altar and speaks in Sanskrit. I keep it real, and I am me, and I've taught skydiving for so long, and there's no dogma in skydiving, which I love. And I just felt like I, you know, every time I went to a yoga studio, I never felt yogi enough. But I loved the practice of yoga, and there wasn't a lot of uh, – in uh, at-home practices back in the day. I, I know exactly what you mean when you say not yogi enough, but what, what does that mean to maybe someone who hasn't had the experience inside of a yoga studio? What do you mean by that? I don't know. Like, I, I don't diss on hippies at all, but it's just like this, uh, oh, you know, you just feel it. I mean, you just know and you just go there. I mean, how many skydiving instructors do you hear saying that? Oh, you just feel it. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, to, to me, it seems yeah. like a, a new agey form of self-righteousness that I just don't know what to do with. Yeah, and I don't know how to speak to that at all. Like, as a yoga instructor, I can't tell people that this is how you're going to feel in a certain pose because I don't know because every day I'm different and my students going to be different every day. It's just like skydiving, right? You just never know. I, I never, I love the philosophy and the history of yoga and I respect it. Just the same thing in skydiving. And I believe where I was trained under, I was trained at the White Lotus Foundation in Santa Barbara in 2007. And my guru, if you will, his name is Ganga White, was so down to earth. He trained under like all these famous yogis. However, he said yoga is scientific and artistic. And the third thing is you make it however you make it. You stand on the shoulders of greatness and you look forward. I was, I totally resonated with that. And that's how I took my whole entire yoga career from there, which made me feel free that I didn't have to be a certain way as a, a yogi and now I have over 1200 teaching hours of yoga and I do all my continuing education in anatomy and because I like to stay busy and I love to learn a lot I also became a certified personal trainer because I also believe that uh, strength training comp I believe strength training complements yoga because there's something in yoga you cannot do to get to build certain muscles, etc. Like, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't build like posterior chain muscles doing a mat practice, but you can do a lot of stuff when you work with weight. So I feel like they both complement each other. And I wanted to be able to bring both of that into my yoga practice and when I'm working out at the gym. The one thing yoga has taught me, which I love is the foundation of everything, is the alignment of everything. 
And that's so important when we talk in skydiving terms and how we hold our body, especially in free flying. But I believe in belly flying, it helps you get that unnatural arch position without your back hurting for days. <laughs> but yeah, yoga and uh, weight training definitely complements skydiving for sure. What sort of weight training do you do? What do you mean? Like what kind? Like I mean, do you uh, are you like on weight machines? Do you do free weights? Are you doing like CrossFit kind of stuff? Are you lifting any heavy weights? Are you doing kettlebells? Kettlebells, yes, free weights. I am not into CrossFit. It actually, CrossFit terrifies me. But I know my brother loves CrossFit. Mm -hmm. I. I just love to do my own thing. I love to do circuit training as well. I love intense workouts. My dad always had a thing because my dad was into lifting heavy weights as well. And when he got out of prison, he was so about that. And I learned under him to begin, like, start that fitness journey, if you will. And he always said, make training hard so competition is easy. Okay, and now that makes more sense that you put it in that sort of context. Because <laughs> I fully agree with that. I think that's a, like a, a great strategy for life, right? If you can learn to embrace the suck and immerse yourself on purpose in difficult things, when difficult things happen, you're just used to it. And now you can deal with the difficult thing that's presenting itself. And it's not a choice because you've chosen to take on struggle so many times. Yep, absolutely. And I just... I did a yin training the weekend before everything shut down. And yin is this very restorative, relaxed type of yoga, which is the antithesis of everything that I do in my physical practice, whether I'm working out or doing yoga. And I did it because this was being held at my yoga studio and I wanted to support my other yoga instructors were going and I kind of felt like, I don't want to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but after doing the training, I was blown away on how many more people need to do this sort of practice because what it does is it focuses on completely different tissues than when you're doing a, a young practice, right? Like when you're moving a lot, it's where you're holding poses, where you start to open up and reverse the, you know, because we're like this, this is the best example, right? We're, we're on a computer, we're on our phones, we're driving, we're riding a bike, we're in this position, we're stressed in gravity, we hold all this down. Yeah, yoga can get you opened up, but there's so much more deeper tissues you can open. So if you laid on a bolster or a towel and just like open your shoulders like this, right? Then we start to open up our shoulders and the, and the yin tissues in our body. But the thing is, is you have to hold those poses between one to three minutes to get any of that benefit. So that was super hard for me because I like to move and we're in these poses. And there was a, a moment where everything clicked for me and I could just relax. And I felt like these opening the, 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 what she was talking about of everything opening up and it was like magic. <laughs> I was like going on telling everybody, everyone needs to do yin now. <laughs> <laughs> you, you found that calming moment that you told all of your AFF students about? The, the calming moment? <laughs> yeah, when it all clicked and you breathed oh, and yeah. you were calm and settled and it felt so oh, yeah. great. Yeah, it was, it was one of those moments I clicked. <laughs> So how's life owning a yoga studio changed since this whole quarantine thing has happened? You're obviously a pro at Zoom video conferencing by now. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, for Project 19, doing all the link-ups for Drop Zone Marketing, we're about to do some more Zoom things. And with the yoga studio, we have jumped online. And I feel that with the quarantine, it was life in full speed, right? We're going, we're cruising, we all have our events, we're working every day, doing our thing, we have family life. And then quarantine happens and we pivot 180. Like no transition period, it was full on adapt 180. And it was super overwhelming because everything was still happening fast. There was no slowing down. And to keep our studio afloat, it was, we had a shift online or I don't know if we could support ourselves. So we did, we did the shift and we're in our second week and we're doing okay. So that's amazing. How many yoga classes do you guys teach in a day that are all going on these Zoom conferences? We, well, we're doing some on a different, we stream on union.fit through our studio. So it's a little bit different. We are considering Zoom and we, I have some instructors that do Zoom as well, but we, we live stream on a different, on a different platform, but it's going good. It's actually going really well. I was super excited. I, I did yoga. Uh, this is maybe, God, five or six years ago, I was going maybe three or four times a week and I was super into it, like uh, Baptiste yoga. And I make, all right, I, I do my best to, like, I think New Year's resolutions are bullshit just because it's like, if you had to wait to New Year's to set a goal, then you're probably not a very goal-oriented person in the first place. But I, I like to write. And so in my journal around New Year's, I'll usually just elaborate on, on a few goals, maybe a little more in depth than I normally would. And one thing that I wrote that I had totally forgotten that I wrote down was I was going to do three yoga classes a week throughout the month of March. And I I discovered this again on like March 4th. And I was like, oh shit, I'm totally supposed to be doing that. And I haven't been. So I went to, I think I did seven, uh, seven days, six or seven days in a row of, of getting to class every day. And uh, obviously the quarantine situation has changed my ability to uh, attend yoga class. But um, I get reminded of the things that I do and, and don't like about yoga. I think we've kind of talked about that a little bit of everyone's kind of got their own philosophy of who they are as a teacher and what it is that they're going to, uh, to find in yoga. What, what do you think? Like what, what's a good, uh, a good relationship with yoga? How many times should someone who's, in, who's active in yoga, how many times should they be doing it in a week? I think it depends on what someone's goals are. Are you doing it for health? Are you, I want to do bird of paradise. Straight leg. <laughs> Okay, if you want to do par Bird of Paradise, you need to go seven days a week. <laughs> Shit. It's too many days. Oh, my gosh. I I am just now, after two years practice, able to do Bird of Paradise. I th Yeah, and it depends. Are you trying to heal something in your body? I broke my wrist in 1999, and I couldn't even do down dog, but now I can do flying splits, and I'm working on handstands because for, that, for 20 plus years, I could never, never bend my wrist enough. So I never had the flexibility or the strength. So yoga has the ability to heal physically. There's a bunch of stuff. I, you know, I have some of my students that tell me that it helps them uh, with their anxiety and depression. I don't have that experience, but it's great to hear for, from other people. So it depends on what you are working on. But I would just say for someone who just wants just a baseline practice, three days a week is great. 
How, how long are most of your classes? You guys do 60 minutes, 90 minutes? I teach 40 minute classes. Oh, and cool. My other instructors teach one hour to one hour, 15 minutes. I do 40 minutes because people like us are so busy. How am I going to fit an hour in a day? Because if you to drive to the studio and they should drive back from the studio, I just don't have that time. So I teach a lunch class. Not right now. I'm only doing once a week right now, but I was teaching five to eight classes a week. And I, I teach 40 minute classes where I'm like, all right, let's get, let's get to where we're going and get in and get out. <laughs> Sometimes with flying, I will jump with someone or see video of someone who's just so good that it's obnoxious and it's like, they just get it. You know, it just works for them. They're intuitive fires. They have good body mechanics. They're good at visualizing. They have all these skills that I don't have. And I hate those people. And uh, my girlfriend is one of those people in the in the yoga world. Of she's she's tiny. I'm looking at her right now. She's sitting next to me. But uh, I could beat her in a handstand contest some of the time. But uh, anything else yoga related, she's she's head and shoulders above above everybody else in a yoga class. It's ridiculous to watch her. Like standing splits is really simple, right? And my favorite thing to do with Sam regarding yoga is to go to a yoga class and I try and push her over while we're doing difficult things because then she will stumble around like the rest of us do. But when, <laughs> but when she's doing like standing split, I look around the room and I'm, you know, maybe my legs at like, God, if, I, if I'm hitting 90 degrees with my leg, it's a good day. And I look around and, and everybody else is struggling just like me. And then I look at her and her forehead is against her shin her leg is straight up in the sky and she'll just look over at me and smile and I think yeah I'm, I'm gonna push you over because this is <laughs> level the playing field yeah exactly you know when I when I learned in skydiving I was not a natural at all my brother was a natural and it drove me crazy and and I actually thought maybe skydiving wasn't for me because I'm not good enough but I stuck with it just trying to figure it out. And eventually, you know, I got to where I'm at today by hard work and perseverance, but putting the time in the sport. It's the same thing for yoga, right? My relationship with yoga is I've been on again, off again, on again, off again, on again, off again. But like deep down inside, I really knew that I wanted to have a consistent yoga practice. And I, in situation just came about to open up the studio. There was just a need for it in the town that we were in because Ben and I made Ben promise me that we wouldn't move for 10 years. <laughs> God, that's a big promise. 10 years, that's a chunk. Well, he has the drop zone, right? So I th thought it would be a, a reasonable time frame. And I knew that I needed to find yoga and we just didn't have it here. And Ben told me, he goes, well, it sounds like you're going to open up a yoga studio. And I, and I freaked out, but then I was kind of excited about it because I knew I would, I would have to be accountable. I would have to show up. And yeah, that's exactly what it did. But it was almost the same way in skydiving too, right? Like my dad said, become an AFF instructor. And then, and, and then all of a sudden I was doing AFF all the time and I was jumping and I got my jump numbers up and things started happening. So the same thing I find in myself that I really like a leadership role to be accountable for myself, even as a student. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's amazing what happens when you follow the advice of people around you who, who love you and are looking out for your best interests, right? Yep, exactly. DJ, have you ever been to a yoga class? No, my uh, my wife has done a bit of yoga. She actually, you remember Alex Merkowitz or however you say her? Did you know Alex, the German gal who jumped his face land, Nick? I don't think so. I don't, I, it, it would, I bet I don't you think Facebook you would remind me. 
Uh, she was homies with Aki. I don't think you knew her, but uh, Valerie mm-hmm. did yoga uh, classes coincidentally at her studio. She was a skydiver and Valerie loved it and started doing yoga at home. And uh, Melissa, you mentioned like how in my life, how in my schedule can I, I get to these classes? And I'm like, well, if it's at home, I can just go ahead and do it. And I've never thought negative of yoga. As a matter of fact, I thought, God, that looks so hard. Um, I can barely bend over and tie my own shoes. And I really enjoyed the couple sessions I did with Valerie. And honestly, it's something I think I should do again. And and I, immediately you both are going to say yes for this reason. I have joint and back issues that I firmly believe if I could strengthen and loosen up my core and my knees and my back and stretch things out and then for strength. And I think I would do a lot better for it. Um, I do have torn things that need to be recovered no matter what, but it's something I just haven't done much of. I, you know, the doctors still exist, right? Doctors? Yeah. Um, They can fix your, fix your knees for you. So right now, Benjamin, what's up, buddy? Hang on. I got to give a shout out to my fourth generation skydiver homie over here. What's up, Benjamin? How you doing, buddy? I want to ask you about your skydive. Can will you listen? Did to you have fun skydiving, Benjamin? Yeah. What was your favorite part? Skydiving because it was so fun. <laughs> so fun. Your mom showed us a video of you teaching other kids to skydive. Do you like teaching? Yeah. What What's your favorite part of teaching people? Teaching them how to skydive. Yeah. And when are you going to skydive again? I don't want to. You don't want to. You made your one and you're done. You, you, how many jumps do you have? Oh. I did two. You did two. Well. Did you fly in a wind tunnel yet? No. 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 Maybe one day? I'm a badass. <laughs> Benjamin, I love you, buddy. You are a little badass. You're so awesome. You're just like your legend. <laughs> yeah, but do you want to jump when you're older? Nope. Oh, you don't. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to fly the airplane? No, <laughs> I think he just likes to see himself in the camera. <laughs> You'll change your mind, do? kid. Don't you worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he's such a cute kid. I've actually only seen the videos and pictures. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Benjamin. <laughs> He's so excited. <laughs> he loves talking about it, and, and he'll tell different parts of the story each time. It's pretty cute. Oh, so, <laughs> were you uh, were you shooting video of this young man on, on your oh, job? Yeah. Yes, and we had outside video too. Cool. Yeah, and Daddy had hand cam, so we got we got all the angles. Got all the angles, just like any good free fly jump. More, more cameras than people. You know, you're you know you're doing good. Doing good. So. <laughs> oh, look at that. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, right. so good. Can you say, can you say, it was nice to meet you? It was nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet gentleman. you too, Benjamin. All right, you gotta go back with Dad, okay? Oh, he doesn't have to leave. If you want to hold him in your lap, we don't mind one bit. I do that exact same thing when my face is on any camera and there are no people around. <laughs> exactly the same behavior melissa we can be sitting in the studio and commonly nick and i co-host and we have a producer but if nick is producing he will turn the camera on himself while we're all talking and just start posing (laughs) right now just like that the difference is is when i do it i have no muscles he's got like some guns on that little midget so 
See, you got better guns than this. Look at this, man. Pipe cleaners right here. I can clean out your pipes. Man, we always get so short times on these. Time always flies by. We've already an hour and 40 some odd minutes into this. Yeah, it goes by so quickly. So um, anything else in particular? Because, man, we could tell Melissa Nelson stories forever. And I do want to save some because one day we'll have you here in studio in Houston. Because I would love to sit down within six feet of each other and do this. It's so much more fun. <laughs> the, the last thing I'm bringing my husband to say hello. <laughs> oh, Ben, please. Ben Lowe, how are you doing, brother? How's it going, DJ? What's up, man? How are you? Going? Hey, how's it going, man? Good to see Good. you. Do you guys know each other, by the way, Nick Lott, Ben Lowe? Gosh, I believe we've met in person. I couldn't tell you when or where. I, yeah, years ago we have. Yeah. yeah, I think we came out for uh, a record right after I had Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And he came out with me watching the little one. So I think that might yeah. be. Maybe the big way sequential, like the, the yeah, 60 way stuff. Yeah. 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 Yay. Ben, ben, while we have you here for a second, I want to kind of backtrack on our conversation. And so many of my skydiving friends say, I wish I could take my kid on a skydive. And they can. And I just want them to know how to get a hold of you and how to get a hold of your drop zone if, if my skydiving buddies do want to take their friends on that tandem or that skydive. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Sure. Best way is ultimatescydivingadventures.com. Yeah, right there. It's on the shirt. Yeah, on the hat, man. Super well branded. Double down. Must, must have learned that from James. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a super good place, ultimatescydivingadventures.com. I remember when you first opened the DZ. And I was super curious to see the challenges you would face. And the challenges are more of the naysayers and the critics. That was a challenge. And kudos to you for, for doing such a great job, for sticking to your guns and morals and doing it like a gentleman. Because so many guys out there trying to make a difference are also assholes. <laughs> and uh, M- Melissa, you joked around about how your father could be abrasive at times. And, and it's so common. Pioneers are very polarizing. And and then you've always done really good at not being that polarizing character and having standards, values, morals, sticking to them and promoting them, but doing it in, in such a respectful way. So kudos and mad respect to you for what you've done, brother. It's why I call him the Ben Lowe, because it's, <laughs> it's a thing. Like he, he is exactly everything that he puts himself out to be. He is no different behind closed doors than when he is at the drop zone. That's what I, it's one of the, you know, I slightly stalked him. Because <laughs> he was one of a kind. <laughs> so what, what, what motivated you to get rid of the mohawk, Ben? I already have a receding hairline, so <laughs> I figured I'd just accept it and just go shorter hair. I've gone with the inverted mohawk. The top is <laughs> like shaved. It's not really shaved. It just looks that way, and the, the rest is bald. Yeah. So, man, what was your favorite part of taking Benjamin on a skydive? I think, you know, you have that. For me, I've taken so many kids that it was. It wasn't anything new that I was taking a, a child on a skydive. But the coolest moment for me was when we opened up and he goes, Daddy, you need to grab the toggles. And I thought, holy crap, he listens to everything that we say. And then he told me, you know, where to go and to make sure that I land and don't drop it. <laughs> I, uh, my, my favorite Scott I've ever, I'll always tell everybody at this point, is taking my sister on her first uh, tandem skydive. And what you said, under canopy, her immediate reaction, that immediate intimate interaction because 
there's no better moment than somebody's reaction when a parachute opens. But when that parachute is somebody you love and cherish in your life, that, that had to be such a wonderful minute moment. It had to be great for you to do. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm going to say something about, oh yeah. So when we, he put the tandem harness on him, Benjamin was really confused because he's been in a hanging harness several times and he knows how to do his emergency procedures. Awesome. So, so he was like, where's my parachute? And we said, oh, you're wearing a tandem harness. He's like, I'm not jumping by myself. <laughs> we, we had trained him so much to do solo jumping that he honestly thought he was going to be opening up and doing his own procedures. That's amazing. At so, four years old. At, at USA Ultimate Skydiving Adventures, you guys do tandems to how young? Seven years old for the public. And, and what about for uh, AFF training, licensed training? We stick to the rest of the industry standard, which was 18. We will do 16 based on, I mean, the industry standard has changed, but we prefer to stick with the 18 because at that point they are in full control. I'm already taking enough risk doing the under 18 for tandems. I figure why not just stick with the industry? Because how many kids at 16 are honestly going to be doing solo? Not many. But if it's, you know, like uh, Dusty Hanks, like he came out and he said, hey, you know, my kids, Aiden and Cole want to do AFF jumping. Sure. No problem at all. We would make it happen. But I like to stick with industry standard on that part because I do feel that that's something that we should stick with across the board because otherwise he's got to commute four and a half hours to stay current. It also is a big difference on a tandem where ultimately you are the pilot in command and you know what responsibilities you have at the age of 16 as the pilot in command. I, it's, it's hard for me to trust a 16 year old to drive a car, let alone land a parachute. I completely understand with that, but let's look at, you know, Mullins kids. They grew up on a drop zone and they were shooting video at 12 and 14 years old. Yeah. But if you look at that, Benjamin's growing up around here. Parachutes are the normal thing. Cutaways are normal. This is his norm. And he used to tell last year his teachers, oh, I'm going to go flying. And they're like, oh, that's cute. You know, you want to go flying in a spaceship. No, my daddy has airplanes and we're going to go flying. And the look on their face was, oh, my God, that's foreign. But we all grow up or we all know that now is something as a norm. You go flying, you jump out. No big deal. But you can't tell that to the average person. If Benjamin chooses that he does want to get a license and he wants to learn to skydive, have you guys discussed an age that would be acceptable or is it when he's ready? I think when... I, I think basically I would do it... Not you. <laughs> I, would, I would do it based on training anyone else that I feel... That I would feel questionable about. What, do we, what did we used to say or what did I used to say and the USBA says... If you can't train someone in AFF, try something else. Train them in tandem, train them in IAD, train them in static line. So use all of the tools that you have to be able to train anyone. And I would do the same thing for Benjamin. Yeah, we haven't discussed an age. Uh, it, you know, he's still, he's only, he's only turning six this summer. So I feel like we'll have to just cross that bridge when he's ready. Just but because- mom, he's a badass, didn't you hear him say it? <laughs> <laughs> you trained you caught him that didn't you ben the badass part <laughs> man uh carrie bell is actually tuned in right now also known as carrie farrington 
And so many ninjas have learned to skydive at that young age. And, and a lot of you are blessed to be drop zone owners, kids or generational skydivers. And, and, and I don't say that mockingly, I say that respectfully because I don't think at 16, I should have skydived. I also am glad I didn't skydive till I was in my mid twenties, just because I am an idiot at 46 and 16, <laughs> I was a massive idiot. Um, but, like you said, Ben, your son has grown up and he understands the norms of it. He understands the everyday common language. And for him, I think it's easier to adapt. So I love the fact that the Farrington children, the the Nelsons, the Lowe's of this world all get to start at an age that is appropriate for each person. Everybody's different and, and to each their own. So kudos to you and your family. And let's be very clear. I mean, I don't know if Melissa said it, but we did not say that he had to skydive. He asked yeah. us to skydive. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, literally it was Mother's Day. And we're just jumping. We had a bunch of students there. We had tandems there. And he looks over and he goes, Daddy, can I skydive? I said, today? He goes, yeah, today. And I ask your mother. And so he goes, Mommy, I want to skydive. So Wait, wait, wait. I have, I have the video. Because <laughs> I, I thought no one would believe this. But he was begging. You needed evidence. Oh, man. We completely needed evidence. But he's, yeah, I know. I happened to have a fun jumper there who had a really nice camera and was a photographer. And so he was taking all of these candid photos that we couldn't have timed better. And he captured stuff that was uh, May 10th. It's not. Oh, that's orange. Um, <laughs> he captured something that was so intimate with Melissa and I doing the last little gear check of Benjamin with me on my knees and Melissa standing over us. And it was, it, it captured something that as a parent, you never thought you could have so much emotion out of one picture. Uh -huh. I've never wanted kids. Look at this. <laughs> so adorable I've, I've never wanted kids but listening to the story Melissa I, I've got to interview Melissa twice now and both times that stuff, I actually shared <laughs> yeah, this on the stream <laughs> that that pimp strut look at that right? he got the Billy strut going on from the beginning Connor stole it from him like the confidence a four-year-old has walking out to an airplane. I mean, you don't get that from just someone you would grab off of the street. He grew up around it, so it was just... <laughs> oh my God. What a landing. That's amazing. That's like taking Nick on a skydive. Yeah, Dusty took me before he took his kids, and I think we probably weighed about the same. <laughs> Benjamin! Good job, buddy! What'd you just do? Yeah! <laughs> oh man so adorable I, I again never really have wanted kids but this like if I ever had kids taking them on a skydive the, the emotional story and, and the blessing that's got to be is wonderful We're missing that audio just a little bit. We actually can't quite hear anything when you hold uh, it up there. He, he just said, I went skydiving. What did he say? 
oh, I went skydiving and I was brave. <laughs> <laughs> ben, do you notice there's an age where kids like just aren't like, is there an age where they're not old enough to be scared yet? So I've taken almost 200 kids in the past three years. And what I notice is you'll never believe it, but the most badass kids are seven to 10 year old girls. The, the 11 to 14 year old boys are the most terrified. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them, the, the 14 to 17 year olds, yeah, they want to do it because their parents are going to pay for it. But literally, it's the 7 to 11-year-olds that want to skydive. So I think in the next 11 years, based on what I'm doing here, we are going to see a whole different mindset or a whole different generation of those newer skydivers, not just the tandems that come in at 18. So I do, you have a, do you have a standing theory about why those girls are doing well? I honestly don't know. I really don't because it's the last thing that I thought. I had took a 12-year-old girl in 2017 who wrote a four-page essay on how skydiving changed her life. <laughs> and, and this is a 12-year-old girl and the confidence that it gave her. I've had changed life for like a 14-year-old boy in Glenwood Springs. It changed his life. His grades got better in school. He became a better kid at home for his parents. His parents personally came and drove two and a half hours and thanked me for what it did for him. I've taken uh, kids that are victims of sexual abuse. I've taken all kinds of kids that I don't really care if the regular public knows. I do it because it changes people's lives that no one else knows about, even though I'm being berated, bashed online, and people are taking it to the nth degree. I am changing lives here, and I've given up a lot to be able to do that, and I'm happy about it. I I cannot back you up anymore. I, when you first started, I actually sent you messages. I don't know if you remember when you started doing it. I sent you questions, and I think they were very valid questions. You gave me very respectful answers. I'm like, oh, well, best of luck, man. Good luck doing it. And people, if you really think these things, I said it earlier, ask Ben his mindset and ask him what he's doing because you're doing a great job of it. I know, or at least I believe and tell me if I'm wrong, you're doing it mainly for the passion and the love of what you do. But I also believe part of you hopes to change the outlook of the sport. Is that second statement true? Yeah, the future of the sport. The future of the sport, but I'm not doing it to change USPA rules. I'm not doing it to change that. I just follow FAA rules. And I do it the way that I believe that I want to run my little Cessna drop zone. Yeah. I don't think it's something every drop zone owner should do. Um, I don't think every drop zone owner should require AADs. I don't think every drop zone owner should offer whatever. Everybody's different. But I do think it's an opportunity we do have. And a lot of people don't realize we have it. Um, USPA is a voluntary organization. I am a huge supporter of USPA and so are you. Um, I mean, honestly, the one thing I hate about you doing this tandem program is you resigned of some of your examiner ratings, if I remember correctly. And I loved having you in the examiner core. When I, I remember meeting you, you and I met in 2012 in the land at the first tandem standardization meeting. And I very quickly learned this is a man who believes in the right thing and has good values. And, and I'm bummed to have you not in that core, but I look forward to seeing, you said 10 to 11 years down the road, I'm curious to see what changes in young skydiving is going on 10 to 20 years down the road based off what you're trying to do today. And I hope other people can learn from your example. I appreciate that. Thanks, DJ.
Oh, dude, you're welcome. I, I was on the board for a time, and I was one of the guys who actually voted to keep the age or, or allow 16-year-old skydiving. It's, it's, I, I get the, the other reasons not to do it, but that's up to a DZO to decide, not, not me. And I think I'm not attacking USP. I'm not attacking the board. I'm not attacking anybody. I am saying it's people's rights and uh, give people a chance. Ben Nelson and Ultimate Skydiving Adventures will prove to you guys it can be done well. <laughs> oh, man. Ben you Lowe. just called him done. Oh, <laughs> just, oh, no. Ben Nelson is like a glitter boy out of the, Spaceland. The ultimate sacrilege. Wow. <laughs> it's not Switzerland. I didn't take her last name. <laughs> No, Ben Nelson's a little troll. You're so much better looking than him, but you're both losing your head. <laughs> That's not the first time it's happened, but this is, this is awesome. <laughs> I've almost done it like three different times during this interview, and I'm so I'm like I was so proud of myself because I'm like I said low, I caught myself, I caught, and that one I didn't even notice till you started like the "what's up at me" thing. So. <laughs> Man, Mr. Lowe, <laughs> we do need to wrap up here soon. We turn into pumpkins, but is there anything else you would like to share with the public about Ultimate Skydiving Adventures and the opportunity to uh, let young folks skydive? Just check us out, ultimateskydivingadventures.com. If you have questions, uh, members, non-members, people that don't know anything about skydiving or skydiving for under 18, you can give me a call or check out the website and drop me an email. Um, but open book when talking about taking under 18 tamas you can also find them on facebook i do follow or like ultimate skydiving adventures on facebook and i actually enjoy you regularly will post pictures of some of your tandems and to see the smiles on their face uh, you see it on every drop zones you know uh, social media tandems but to see the children smile there there's something pure about their joy so I, I really enjoy it you guys should follow them on facebook it, it is really cool to see those guys i'm kind of distracted now because i went to your facebook page and now i'm scrolling through pictures so the best part is though i get to take the 50 pound kid but my other tan instructor takes the 230 pound dad yes perfect <laughs> yeah ben thank you for joining us i really appreciate it i'll do my best to keep calling you low are you going to uh, uh, ben, are you going to be in Cincinnati in February for PIA? Um, yeah, I'll show up. Cool. Cool, man. I just, I don't know if you're always there. I hope to see you there. It's one of the, my favorite part of PIA is that time to catch up with friends. So I hope to see you there, brother. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for joining us, homie. Mr. P, do you have anything else for Mrs. Lowe? No, it's been great. I, I mean, I'm sad that, uh, that we're all stuck in our houses but this is at least a good excuse for us to connect with people that we normally wouldn't be able to have on the show. So yeah. Thanks for joining us. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you would like to share with your friends and family as we uh, get on out of here? You can follow me on Facebook, Melissa Lowe. I have a personal page and an athlete page where I share all the things, yoga, skydiving, marketing, I don't know, whatever I'm inspired by, by the day. <laughs> And of course, if you guys and gals are listening to the audio podcast, you can go to the show notes. We're going to have Ultimate Skydiving Adventures link and all of Melissa's uh, uh, social media stuff. So you can find out how to get a hold of Melissa or Ben Lowe through those resources. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Next week, Nick, we'll try to get together. We'll see what we have going on. I am going to release one of the Deland Chronicles, kind of what I've renamed it in my brain. Um, Melissa, I don't know if you knew we went to Deland and interviewed a bunch of the uh, epics. Uh, What's that guy's name? The guy with the beard? You really don't know Bill Booth's name right now? <laughs> Bill Booth, thank you. Oh my God.
right in. <laughs> I was afraid to call him Ben Nelson again, man. Um, uh, we, we, we interviewed a lot of really cool people like John and, and uh, Bill. Bill Booth. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to drop another one of the Deland Chronicles next week. We'll be back with something else. Till then, guys and gals, that is Benjamin the Badass, Melissa Nelson-Lowe, Nick Law. I'm DJ Marvin. This has been Gravity Lab Radio's Blue Skies. We are out of here, guys. Don't touch your face.